Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the new science of epigenetics. With me is my old friend, Dr. Kenneth Pelletier. He is a professor of medicine at the University of California Medical Center in San Francisco. He is also the author of many books, including Mind as Healer, Mind as Slayer, Sound Mind, Sound Body, The Best an Alternative Medicine, and most recently, Change Your Genes, Change Your Life. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. Good to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you after so many years. It is, actually. I think we figured 40 years. Or Something like long that. Time. We, we go back to our days in graduate school. We do, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's good. Well, I have to tell you, I'm incredibly impressed with the, the research that you're reporting on having to do with the field of epigenetics, the idea that we are no longer, one might say, the prisoner of our genes. We have the ability to control consciously through our behaviors and our attitudes the way our genes express themselves. That's very articulate, and that's exactly what we're finding out. I think the biggest misconception for uh, the lay public and generally for, for our colleagues in medicine and health is that the gene is like the hard drive on a computer, that it's a set of invariant laws and rules that we have to follow, we have to live by. And it turns out that it's completely inaccurate. Uh, about 5% of what we experience as adults uh, has to do with what they call monogenic or fully penetrant genes. So if you have it, it will show up. Mm -hmm. uh, the other 95% is entirely dependent on what we do, uh, stress, our environment, our diet, our exercise, uh, relationships with other people. Those all determine our genetic expression. Now, when I studied biology a long time ago, there there was this concept of Lamarckian genetics, yes. and we were told Lamarck was wrong. Lamarck believed that acquired characteristics could be passed on uh, through the genes, and now it seems as if actually Lamarck was more or less correct. Uh, you're absolutely right, and probably Lamarck was more correct than Darwin, as Darwin believed in this kind of uh, invariant hard drive model. And Lamarckian genetics was that, in fact, we do evolve from generation to generation. I mean, there are some fascinating things. So we even change our genes within our lifetime, not within a generation, but within our own lifetime, we change the gene expression. There's also a whole field now of what they call transgenerational epigenetics, which is not only do genes sometimes transmit to the next generation, they can skip a generation. So something that's a genetic quality of a grandparent doesn't show up in their children, shows up in their grandchildren. So this is a whole new uh, area of genetic mystery, mm -hmm. and it certainly is Lamarckian genetics brought to life again. I, and I, now, that's something I've heard about. I, I think they've been called recessive genes. Yes. Yes. So, uh, for instance, uh, where the transgenerational genetics were, were first uh, noticed, discovered, was with the survivors of Nazi concentration camps. So the, the hypothesis was that children of Nazi concentration camps would have a higher predisposition to stress. They'd be an elevated stress Children threshold. of the victims. Children of the victims. Turns out that's not the case. They have a kind of a normal range of response. But the grandchildren of the survivors of Nazi concentration camps do have a state of hyperarousal. And and the, th the thinking is that the children of the survivors were buffered. Their families valued love and compassion, and they didn't want their children suffering. So they took good care of them. In other words, they may have had the predisposition to a hyperarousal, but everything around it damped it out, kept it within a normal range. But then when they had children, they didn't necessarily feel that same sense of necessity of a happy home and an intact family. Mm. And so that response then did give itself expression third generation. 
Well, child rearing practices have changed quite a bit as, yes. as, as well. But now when it comes to epigenetics, you're really looking at uh, molecular properties associated with the genes, around the genes, attached to the genes, that get passed along within the genes, with the genes, yes. and uh, control the expression of the genes. Correct. So my, my book title is a kind of gotcha title uh, that change your genes because you don't ever change your genes. Genes can be damaged. They can be damaged by radiation. They can be damaged by petrochemicals, uh, by herbicides, by pesticides. So an herbicide like Roundup and the glycosate is a, is a gene-damaging biochemical. And there was a study two weeks ago that they actually found glycosate in plankton in Antarctica. My so, so it, it and, and it is a gene disruptive biochemical. So literally, we are swimming in a sea of a potentially carcinogenic, according to the World Health Organization, they did classify uh, Roundup as a carcinog- possible carcinogen. The EPA, in all its wisdom, decided not to declare it as a possible carcinogen again about two weeks ago. So we have this these influences. Now, the gene can be damaged by any of these, but n- under normal conditions, there's a molecular sheath. It's like a glove on a hand, and they're called single nucleotide polymorphisms. Like all things in genetics, it's a mouthful. And the acronym or the abbreviation is SNP, S-N-M-P, S-N-P-S, SNPs. SNPs are like rheostats. So they coat the gene, and that's where the interactions happen between mm-hmm. diet, stress, the body chemistry, and it turns on the volume or turns up the light like a rheostat of the gene or it turns it down. And what we want ideally is to be within this ideal optimal uh, range. That That's the goal of uh, epigenetics. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, some genes may, may be harmful and you want to turn them down a little. Yes. Some genes are helpful. You want to turn them up. Correct. Absolutely. So you take, for instance, uh, inflammation. Everybody thinks inflammation is bad, at least the heart disease and irritable bowel syndrome and arthritis and all kinds of degenerative diseases. And, or if it's too low, then you're immunocompromised. Mm-hmm. So you get infections. Uh, you know, you basically would have autoimmune diseases. And the reality is you want it right in the middle. You want enough inflammation to protect your body and yet not enough to lead to heart disease or irritable bowel or the other kinds of conditions. So this, this narrow range of inflammation is actually good. So as an example, you cut yourself, that reddening around the cut, that's inflammation. Mm-hmm. That's your body's immune system reacting to that cut, making sure it doesn't get infected and turn into something worse. That's a good use of inflammation. So all of these biomarkers, and there are hundreds and thousands of biomarkers, all of these operate within these narrow ranges. And ideally, what we want to do is know where we are and what we can do to move them into that range. Mm-hmm. So if if you were to discover genetically that a person has a predisposition for, well, let's say breast cancer, it's pretty common. Right. And and I know uh, they're looking very carefully at the genetic uh, relationships and uh, how they affect breast cancer, among other diseases. Right. So if, if you know you have a propensity for that in your genes, you're saying there are things that we can do consciously to keep that gene from expressing itself. Absolutely. And that's the case with probably 90-some-odd percent of genetic expression. Uh, through diet is a huge impact, uh, stress management, physical activity, uh, the physical environment, the quality of the air, yeah. quality of the water, quality of the earth, um, all of those, the psychosocial dimensions, interactions between friends have a direct and immediate impact on on epigenetic expression. So all of those things are what really govern that expression. Now, these are the same things you've been writing about for decades, <laughs> yes. but now you, ha- you know how the mechanism works a little better. Yes. One person that, I, that interviewed me rather like this, mm-hmm. from she interviewed me probably 40 years ago, uh, said, you know, this sounds like mind is healer 40 years later. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, that, that hadn't occurred to me, but you're right. So mm-hmm. mind is healer looked at the biochemistry and the biology of our organ system. This is a whole level deeper. This is now at the level of 
a single cell within the human body mm-hmm. and the ocean that surrounds it, which is everything that Midas Healer dealt with. So it is. It's kind of like uh, Midas Healer 50 years later and some of the same mechanisms are responsible for that impact. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the intriguing points you make in your book is that in addition to the uh, 23 pairs of chromosomes that we have, and I, th- I think you mentioned about 23,000 genes yes. encoded in those chromosomes. We also yes. contain millions of other genes of, uh, from the biological organisms that inhabit our bodies. Yes, and that is... That's really the microbiome. So they're they're really three parts. It's a bit of a a transgression Mm -hmm. or or, or aggression. Digression. Digression. Uh, Transgression. Uh, But uh, there are really three components. Mm -hmm. You want to know who you are biochemically. You really want to understand your dietary choices, your stress intervention. So there's the gene itself, there's the expression in blood, and then there's the microbiome, which is what happens after everything is processed in your body. Mm-hmm. And the the uh, you, the biome is actually everything between your mouth and your anus. It's all the cells mm-hmm. in that organ system. There are tens of trillions, 30 to 40 trillion cells in that System, and if you're a woman, you add in the uh, reproductive organs. Mm-hmm. That adds literally tens of millions of cells. So, and this system is probably ten times the number of cells than in the entire human body. So, this is a huge system. It's constantly changing, highly interactive, very sensitized. And we hear now about the brain gut connection. There's a direct connection between the gastrointestinal tract and the brain through the vagus nerve, through body chemistry. But the point is when we talk about how the gut will lead to depression and depression will change the gut, it's absolutely bidirectional and very powerful. Mm-hmm. And all of these organisms, it's, it's as if we are uh, symbiotic creatures ourselves. We're not just a single organism. That's true. Yeah, these these colonies, there are 300 colonies of tens of trillions each in the intestinal tract. Now, think about the complexity of trillions of organisms in 300 different nations or 300 different species. Some are benign, some are neutral, some are negative, all in constant interaction inside your body every day of the, of the week. Mm-hmm. And it is changing literally by the second, by the minute. So you, you're suggesting that in the future... Researchers will be able to measure the changes that take place in in, in this microbiome, as well as in the uh, other epigenetic markers. And people will have personalized medicine that is a, a doctor may come up with a hypothesis of a certain treatment and then will be able to uh, run tests and find out within a matter of days or a couple of weeks uh, how effective that treatment is. Yes. Yes, and that's exactly, I mean, that, that may be far in the future, but even now with the uh, phenotyping of cancer drugs, there are certain cancers that have such distinct genetic markers that now the ability to take drugs and say, does this drug affect that particular receptor site on that tumor? And there's a growing number of cancer chemotherapeutic agents that have that property, and that's come uh, out of more traditional uh, genetic engineering. But if you think about it, whatever dietary supplement, whatever food, you consume whatever stress management practice or exercise or environmental exposure you have in your home or in your work environment, all of that will be traceable in exactly the same way. So the whole objective, the whole objective is when we try to decide between a paleo diet or a vegetarian diet or high fat, low fat, daily, weekly fasting, once a month fasting, all of the the barrage, if you will, of conflicting and often nonsense-based diets, we will know, because you'll know biochemically, what does your gene need? What do you need as an individual? When we answer that question, then we really have entered the era of personalized medicine, and it's coming. It's Mm -hmm. within... They're already testing companies now that provide a lot of this information. And within the next couple of years, two or three years, there's going to be a radical number of 
science-based, reliable, high-quality testing companies that can do this? Well, during the last several decades, while I've been sort of burying my nose in books on parapsychology and consciousness, I gather there have been huge international consortiums of researchers from yes. multiple universities working together to understand the uh, not only the human genome, but also the epigenome, I guess. Is that the right word, epigenome? Epigenome, yes, it uh -huh. is. Yeah, and, and there are, I mean, certainly the mapping of the complete human DNA, uh, the, the mapping of the human biome, uh, and, and uh, genetic array, that was accomplished, oh, I think about seven or eight years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first person to have their human genome mapped entirely was James Watson of Watson and Crick. Oh. So about five years ago, mm -hmm. he had his genome completely mapped. And he said in a, a lecture one time that the state of the art in understanding that, so this enormous library of information, 23 to 25,000 genes, like letters of an alphabet that need to be strung into words, words into paragraphs, and then into a story, that if he brought his genome, completely mapped human genome to his family doctor, it would tell that person 1 to 3% more about his health and a good physical. Mm -hmm. So that's a minimal amount of information. Yeah. So we have this enormous library. It's like walking into the Library of Congress. You don't know what you're looking for. What kind of book are you looking for? Who's the author? Where is it? So what we're doing now is struggling to decode and understand what this means. Mm -hmm. That That's our biggest challenge right now. And at one time, I gather it was thought that roughly 90% of your genes were like dark matter or something, yes. that they, they seem to have no active role in uh, the body. That's true. When you look at the entire array of the human genome, about 5 to 8% is known to be active, is doing the predominant amount of coding for everything from eye color to height to disease predispositions to life expectancy, which is fascinating. Uh, that's something that is under our influence. Uh, and, and the other 90-some-odd percent has been called the dark genome. So we don't know what it does. Mm -hmm. It's not inert. We just don't know what its functions are. So it's like dark matter in space. Mm -hmm. We know it's there. And until two weeks ago, there was no evidence of it. And just two weeks ago, in a, a, a linear accelerator, they actually was the first detection of actually the infinitesimal presence of dark matter. It was the first time oh. it's been observed. Uh, I think it was at CERN, and it was the first time that that's been uh, detected. So it's like that with the genome. Uh, it'd be like if it, uh, an analogy would be if we were exploring North America and all we knew was about the coast of Maine, mm -hmm. and that was all we knew. That's pretty much the state of the art. So the science is going to be quite exciting mm -hmm. in the next decades. Well, I'm under the impression that in in your book you suggest that a, a good chunk of that 90% of uh, dark genes actually is, plays what I guess I would call an epigenetic function. It regulates the expression of other genes. Yes. I, I mean, that's a theory right uh -huh. now. Okay. Um, but I, I think it probably is a theory with a lot of substance to it, which is, again, we have these genes. That they're, they're not, it's not just a single gene acting alone in space and pushing us toward a disease or pushing us toward a state of intelligence or whatever it happens to be. These are these genes are in colonies in constant interaction with each other. And that's probably what the dark genome is doing. Mm -hmm. It has other gene complexes that are interacting that either increase or decrease the expression of dominant genes. So for instance, now if we look at our major chronic diseases, there are probably about 40 to 50 genes. Small number out of the 23 to 25,000 that actually are probably responsible for most of what we see as chronic disease. Mm -hmm. uh, the interaction between 40 and 50 of these involving thousands of subsets, that's where it gets uh, complicated. You use the metaphor of the cloud to sort of describe our genetic makeup. <laughs> yes, and it is in the cloud. Uh, you know, we all... The difference between any one person and the person sitting next to you or across from you is less than 0.01%, less than one one-hundredth of a percent of our genetic 
code is different between one human being and another. Mm. So there's a very, very minute amount of information that differentiates and makes, makes us who we are and who we are that are neat. 99.999% mm. of who we are is common among all other human beings on the planet. In fact, I read somewhere once that uh, our genes are very similar to the genes of wheat. Yes, they are. And yes, th- that's true. And, and there's another fact that the separation between us and chimpanzees mm-hmm. is less than 1% gene expression. So less than 1% of genetic expression separates us from our next closest species. And probably if we do testing on marine mammals like orca or dolphins or certain whales like the humpback whales, I think we may find that we are genetically probably within 1% of their genetic expression as well in vital areas like mm-hmm. metabolism and intelligence and decision-making, all of those higher-order functions. Well, all of this suggests that uh, maybe we've been placing too much emphasis on genes themselves as a way to unlock all the mysteries of human nature or nature. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think that that is true. Um, and to me, what's fascinating is that these these genes that uh, we, we were talking about this earlier are, in fact, operate as a superconductor. There's some work by Arthur Young and other individuals that predicted 20, 30 years ago that the core of the DNA would be a superconductor at room temperature. Now, that's extraordinary. That would be the only substance that we know of that is a superconductor at room temperature. Secondly, that the gene emits light. So superconductor and light means the gene is operating outside of space, outside of time. It's in a realm of consciousness. It's in a realm above and beyond uh, material reality. Now, that is remarkable. And the fact that we can influence this expression, that we're not passive victims of this, and by very specific and easy things to do, diet is huge, stress is huge, etc., um, that, that is to me a great source of optimism mm-hmm. that we can have that influence mm-hmm. even over our life expectancy yeah. that's that's another that is always a surprise mm-hmm. well you uh, cite in your book uh, the work of bruce lipton who, yes. who's written a book very well received book, The Biology of Belief. Yes. Uh, I believe, uh, you, you quote him saying that our unconscious mind is maybe a million times more powerful than our conscious mind. I think that is very true. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a new line of, of research looking a kind of resurgence, some of these, these cycles. So we're not in a 40 year resurgence of, uh, interest in, uh, microdosing of hallucinogenic agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out that people have remarkable recovery from post-traumatic stress syndrome, from, from extreme depression, from uh, uncontrollable anger. They have these many, in effect, mystical experiences. These experiences last for minutes, sometimes hours, certainly not days. And yet that experience alters that person's life in a positive way from that point forward. Mm-hmm. Now, Think about that. I mean, if something in a matter of seconds can alter a person's entire life going forward, that's de facto evidence of a higher order of reality. So the the higher order has to do with consciousness, has to do with our perceptions. And I think that the challenge, if you will, to our current understanding of biology is that we think of consciousness as an epiphenomena of the brain. Right. That the brain has this stuff going on in chemistry and electrical activity and oh, consciousness arises. I think it's just the opposite. I think we have consciousness and the brain, physical body, reality is an epiphenomena of consciousness. And this is consistent with the later writings of, of, of uh, Prebrum and Bogan and Sperry and even more recently with, uh, with Stan Groff that these, these superordinate states have an, a, an overriding, uh, predominant influence on our conscious mind. So the conscious mind is like a scribe. <laughs> and the superconscious mind is telling the scribe what to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Which suggests that uh, 
as Barbara Marks Hubbard and others uh, have suggested, we could begin consciously to take control over the evolution of our species. Yes, and I, I think ultimately that is uh, what is occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at some point, we I don't know when in the future, but that we will know uh, how our positive emotional experiences like joy, uh, laughter, love, uh, peace, compassion have a direct, we already know they have a direct impact on the gene. I think what we'll find out is how we sustain those mm-hmm. positive emotions and how in sustaining it, it has a sustained positive long-term impact on the gene. Mm-hmm. There are some very good meditation studies that in a period of 12 weeks of a very benign mindfulness meditation, uh, that people who have not meditated before and have their genes tested before and after have all of their genetic expression improved in terms of reduced inflammation, lipid metabolism improved, detoxification gets improved. All of the vital signs that tell us how well we're doing in terms of health are all improved. And there's interest there's a that was a study at Harvard, mm-hmm. um, and then more recently, that was in 2009, 2010. In 2013, some smart graduate student at Harvard decided that what he would do is look at a group of meditators before and after a 20 minute interval of meditation. Mm-hmm. Did that make any difference? It doesn't seem like it. So he did a biomarkers at, at prior to meditation, biomarkers at 20 minutes later. They were all improved in 20 minutes. Uh-huh. Now, that to me is astounding. It doesn't mean we can improve, we can meditate for 20 minutes and everything is fine, but it means if you sustain that over time, you're going to have that genetic expression become the norm because of the kinds of transcendent states that people experience during meditation. So, yes, I think that kind of positive influence over our genes is entirely possible. It's a, it's a note of optimism. Now, I think you're using the term biomarkers in a very particular way. You don't mean yes. just that they're more relaxed, obviously. No, no the biomarkers, that's a good question. Thank you. Uh, biomarkers are literally a number assigned to a biochemical function in the human body. Mm-hmm. So an example would be uh, cholesterol. So if, if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, most people would not know their cholesterol. Today, I think probably every person listening to this would have, would have an idea. They'd know what their cholesterol number is. Mm-hmm. That's a biomarker. So there's a number associated with cholesterol that if it's too high, obviously indicates heart disease and other issues. If it's too low, it indicates other things like pancreatic disorders or, or even cancers. What you want is this optimal range uh, of, of biomarker. So if you think about it, with the thousands of biomarkers in the human body that have to do with, with uh, biochemistry, with uh, immunity, detoxification, uh, oxidative stress, what we want is through informing ourselves about the marker, we want to bring them all within this optimal range of health. And when you have that, that produces optimal health, optimal longevity. So that's the whole mm-hmm. goal, if you will, of, of uh, epigenetic assays. But some biomarkers are very particularly involved in the regulation of genetic expression, though. Um, they are, mm-hmm. yes. So they are. Uh, some are more, there, there are complex relationships between the genetic code and blood chemistry mm-hmm. expression. Yeah. So some genetic markers have a direct expression in the blood, which is great. There are some genetic markers that have no expression in the blood. We don't know where it shows up in the human biochemistry blood, mm-hmm. bloodstream. Uh, there are others that have opposite. So this is the marker would indicate that you should have a movement in this direction and the blood shows up that actually it's a kind of perverse negative response. So there are all of these different interactions between the marker and blood chemistry. Right now, for simplicity, most of the testing is focused on when you get a confluence. So you get a marker, and it shows up in the blood, and that biochemistry then shows up in the biome. When you get that pathway, that then tells us a lot of 
lot of information. You use a um, interesting metaphor for this kind of research. You suggest that in order to really understand the epigenetic biomarkers, it's like tracing the footprints of an animal that has walked over uh, uh, the snow, but after a snowstorm has already covered them up. Yes, that's a good analogy. And it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it sounds very clear cut. It sounds so, so simple. It's not that simple. It's very, genetics is very complicated and, and creating the, the human biomarkers for genetics is extremely, uh, complex. But you're right. It's like these are pathways in our body that we have been pushing. So, for instance, you may be consuming a diet that's been pushing you toward inflammation for a long period of time. Suddenly you have a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. You say, whoa, how did that happen? Well, if you look back over time, you've been having consuming a diet or engaged in stress or in an environment in which you've had this continual inflammatory predisposition until finally it turns into a disease. Well, you can flip it around and you can say, okay, so what was the pathway, and now it's covered over. We really don't know quite what did it. Was it the diet? Was it the stress? Was it the lack of exercise? But you can say, okay, now we'll uncover it. Mm-hmm. Now we'll go back and re-explore. We'll get under the snow, under the interference that's occurred, and find out what led us here. And the, the to me, the great news is that we can then unwind it. You can't un- always unwind it 100%. You're not going to become symptom-free or disease-free, although that does happen. We have spontaneous remissions. Mm-hmm. You have a complete disappearance of an advanced disease in many categories. That is the unwinding, if you will, of this epigenetic pathway and getting back to ground level where the body is actually set up to maintain optimal health. Mm-hmm. The body is actually very healthy until we interfere with this sense of symmetry, balance, uh, and, and then we begin to have problems. One of the biomarkers that you reference in your book, uh, I think it's pronounced telomeres? Yes. The, uh, yeah, the telomere is an X-shaped chromosome. Mm-hmm. And so the length of the arm of the X and the tip of it is an indication of uh, aging. Mm. So when the when the telomere is elongated and the tip is intact, that's good. And it means that those cells are going to replicate many times accurately because mm-hmm. the, the print, if you will, is replicated yeah. uh, accurately. Um, if you take... Which is important for aging. Is, correct. Is, uh, your cells keep replicating Accurately. Accurately. Okay. Right. So if you take the number of replications under mm-hmm. ideal circumstances mm-hmm. in a telomere, it turns out if you apply that to human aging, the human life expectancy should range from about 120 to 150. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact is we obviously don't live that long. The longest documented human being was John Calumet at 123 in Paris. Um, so we don't have many people living beyond, a, no, no people we know of beyond 123. Mm. But the telomere, again, is a, a marker of, of aging. And the opposite of that is when the telomere is shortened and the ends fray. So you think about if you're doing a, a Xerox of a fuzzy picture, gets fuzzier and you do it again, it keeps getting fuzzy and fuzzy yep. until it, that's how, how we age. Mm-hmm. The cells are not replicating normally. Mm-hmm. The good thing, again, for us is there are many things that we can do. Antioxidants, uh, exercise, certain foods, uh, stress management, all of these have the direct impact of maintaining telomere integrity and length. Mm-hmm. So this is a, for Elizabeth Blackburn, who's a Nobel Prize winner, is on the faculty at UCSF, and she got the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the telomere. And uh, she's very articulate about the fact that we are not victims mm-hmm. in terms of life expectancy. In fact, quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. If we have a genetic push, we can undo that. You may have parents that live to be 100. You might only live to be in your 60s because of the lifestyle choices you've made. On the other hand, you may parents have lived in their 60s you may live to be 100, again, as long as you implement these lifestyle changes that are life-affirming. Mm-hmm. So, um, in summary, it would seem as if, if if I understand my genetic makeup and my epigenetic makeup and the uh, microbiome, the makeup there, the millions of genes in the microbiome, I can 
develop for myself with the help of professionals such as yourself a a routine that would include diet, exercise, perhaps nutritional supplements, maybe even drugs that would be optimal uniquely for me. Correct. That is personalized medicine Mm -hmm. in a nutshell. It's like a fingerprint. You have a biochemical fingerprint that makes you uniquely you. And if you knew about the best foods, the best environment, uh, the best stress management technique, the best exercise, the best friendships that promote the optimal health for you as an individual. That's exactly what you describe. And, you know, the, you don't have to know about the, the trillions of cells and the, the, the complexities of the organic interaction. When you do these assays, there are algorithms that companies have developed. There are about five or six companies that still, even now, right mm-hmm. now, do a very good job of these kinds of predictive mm-hmm. models. And I know you consult with some of them. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any, by the way, quick, just as a uh, whatever caveat, I don't have any financial proprietary interest in mm-hmm. them. So anything that we talk about with regard to them is is really strictly looking at them uh, objectively. Mm-hmm. But they can do these assays. And what it comes down to is not this immensely complex biochemical profile. Uh, it says, eat, eat walnuts not almonds because you don't digest almonds very well. Walnuts you digest well, that's best for you. That's what it comes down to. Very simple things. Mm-hmm. Most of it is just tweaking what we already do. Mm-hmm. And and the analogy I like to use is if I ask you right now, what do you think is going to be less taxing on your body chemistry? And body chemistry being a glycemic response, which shows the body is under strain if it has a Spike in glycemic response. Mm. An Oreo cookie or a banana? Which would be less which would be taxing? More, which would be more taxing? More taxing? I would guess offhand the Oreo cookie. Okay. Not so. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I would have guessed the same thing. Yeah. Um, it turns out that it is individual. Mm-hmm. So some people, literally, they will eat an Oreo cookie. The glycemic index will stay flat or normal. The banana will send it as a spike, oh. which means it's a strain mm-hmm. on their biochemistry and digestion to digest a banana, whereas they can manage an Oreo cookie very well. Isn't that interesting? Other people, yeah. you will have the uh, Oreo cookie will produce the predictable negative spike. You say, ah, right. And the banana will produce a relatively mm-hmm. flat uh, uh, curve. It varies by individual. So every single person will have a different response to the same food. Different response at different times, different geography, different uh, jet zones. There's a study that was undertaken from the Wiseman Institute in Israel, which is a, a the basis for one of the companies doing an assay. And they sent a, a bunch of graduate students all around the world and said, just do a biomic assay, just do a stool sample, and it's a, a gram or two. It's a very microscopic amount. When you get there and bring it back, so they, they got the chow, these students yeah. got to travel all over the world. They loved it. Do a little sample and then come back. Uh-huh. And what they looked at was they had, they had obviously the person's biomic sample from before they left. What they found was enormous variability in where they were. Oh. For some of them, their immunity went up. Others, it dropped. Uh, some had widely spiked inflammation markers. Other ones dropped. Again, the one variable was a circadian rhythm and the difference in the biological location where they took that sample. Mm-hmm. So it, it just simply shows us how complex this is. Uh, but the good thing is it's relatively stable over time. Mm-hmm. So it does fluctuate. But there's a range of fluctuation, which is perfectly normal, does not really change. So you can see when you're too high or too low, that's a problem. But most of the time you're operating within this this optimal range. And I gather uh, from your book that uh, even different types of meditation might affect yes. the yeah, epigenetic uh, characteristics differently. Yes. So y- if you think about it, there are literally hundreds of forms of meditation. Mm -hmm. There are hundreds of forms of yoga, uh, Pilates, stress management techniques, autogenic training, Jacobs and Progressive Relation, mindfulness meditation, Mm -hmm. transcendental meditation, whatever. So all of us, again, have a predisposition to a particular kind of meditation that fits better for us. Some people say, well, I can't visualize. I close my eyes and I just see black. That's fine. That might mean that you need to tune in 
uh, with a sense of touch or smell or hearing or taste. Um, and so that would take you down a different meditation pathway. Or some people say, I close my eyes, I see 3D quadraphonic sound movies. Great. That probably means visualization is going to work for you. So again, with the, the biochemical assays, we can actually see is that particular form of meditation that you just are engaged in, is that of having a positive effect? Is it normalizing your inflammatory response? Is it normal? Is it increasing your lipid metabolism? Mm. Is it increasing your ability to detoxify the chemicals in your body? And again, that will tell you, okay, this one for me, for my biochemistry, is the good form of meditation. How many people do you know shopped around done dozens of forms of meditation? Well, practically not, everybody. Practically everybody, right? <laughs> and, and you don't know if it works. Yeah. I mean, some may, it maybe works. You don't really you know. You have to rely on your own intuition. Correct. Yeah. And intuition can be, as you know, wrong. Yeah. It can, <laughs> it can be. be right. Yeah. And most often it's right. And it's the most valuable thing I think we have as human beings, which is this non-intellectual uh, cognitive process. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can be totally wrong. And that that's why... Uh, I mean, I like the biochemistry. Mm-hmm. I like the reality of, of physical markers of intangible things like love, like purpose, mm-hmm. like meditation, like higher order of reality phenomena that show up in the physical and mm-hmm. have distinct markers. That's to me a kind of a challenge in science. Well, and, and it used to be the case when you and I were graduate students that these were two different worlds, scientific measurement on the yes. one hand and uh, the study of things like love and intuition. On the other hand, they they were uh, as far apart as could be. And your work is bringing them together. Well, I, I hope that it is. I mean, I've tried. That's that's what I've tried to do. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in the mid-70s when I did my early research with the adept meditators like you're you know about that and uh, we didn't we actually spoke about that yeah. um at the time the uh textbooks talked about the autonomic and the voluntary nervous system mm-hmm. and that these were like parallel tracks non-interactive they did not intersect well at the, at something about that didn't make sense to me because if you think about it, you can hold your breath, which is voluntary, but when your oxygen saturation drops, you'll start to breathe. That's yeah. involuntary, mm-hmm. so you'll force yourself to breathe. Eye blinking, you can keep your eyes open for a period of time. When the ocular fluid dries, you will blink mm-hmm. from to, to re, basically, uh, you know, relubricate your eye. So I knew that somehow these systems were in interaction some of the time. And I had heard stories about meditators who could control bleeding, control pain, infection. And there were some studies that were done by Dr. Elma Green at the Menninger yep. Foundation. But he did them in a very uncontrolled manner, and they were they were dismissed mm-hmm. by and large. But I had something very intriguing about that. So I followed up with one of the subjects he had studied, a Dutch meditator named Jack Schwartz, yep. who was a meditation teacher. And uh, his favorite thing was to take a large diameter, unsharpened, unsterile uh, uh, knitting needle uh, and push it through his bicep. Right. Now, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, do not do this at home, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> I, I'm not interested in even attempting it <laughs> no, personally. No, I don't. Uh, so and he would just do this, yeah. you know. And, and so uh, we brought him into the lab at UCSF and... Uh, uh, he did this, I think, five or six different times, strictly controlled laboratory conditions. One of the criticisms of the study was that the studies at, at the Menninger Foundation was that, well, he's not normal. Mm-hmm. He doesn't respond to pain, doesn't bleed, doesn't get infections. He's just not normal. He has different sensory apparatus. So we did standard bleeding time, standard pain response time, all of the nor- heart rate regularity tests, and basically established unequivocally when he was not meditating, he felt pain, he bled, he cre- he contracted infections just like all of us. But then when he was meditating, he looked like he was on a, a beach in Hawaii. I mean, electrical activity in his brain was, was slow and calm, fo- you know, forebrain to aft, mm-hmm. uh, from left to right, all symmetrical. His respiration rate was low and calm and respiration patterns, his heart rate and regularity were, were perfectly normal and relaxed looking. Uh, so what we, what, what our takeaway from that was that he was able when meditating, to influence these autonomic functions through his practice of meditation. Mm-hmm. And 
when we submitted, this is, a, again, a kind of sidebar, when you submit an article for publication, there's submitted and published. Yeah. So there's a, and there's a time lag, usually two or three months, for a priority of discovery. Well, we submitted our article, and <laughs> the actual publication date was 18 months after we submitted it. Mm. And the reason why was that the editors just did not believe the data. We had to submit all of our data tapes for third-party analysis. Finally, after whatever, you know, 12 months or 15 months, they decided, okay, this was legitimate and accurate and we would publish it. Uh, so, so uh, you know, it, it, it shows you the, the difficulty, if you will, of breaking, if you will, the, the scientific assumptions, the yeah. reductionistic scientific assumptions. I think that's what we're confronting in this area of epigenetics. We're so used to thinking of the gene as a set of, again, it's kind of like the hard drive in the computer. Mm -hmm. It's invariant. We can't change it. And when quite the opposite is true, but it's taking a long time to figure that out. It's taking even a longer time to say, okay, if that's true, how is it affected? And what can we do with that to improve our health in terms of medications, diet, exercise, stress, etc. That's our challenge right now. And I would imagine, looking back on the work you did so many decades ago with Jack Schwartz, that today you would, uh, if, if he were available for research, you'd like to see if he had permanently modified his epigenetic uh, characteristics through his meditation. That's abs- that's, a gr- that's actually a very profound insight. My guess is yes. And we have examples of that. Um, uh, there was a story about a month ago about a deep sea diver, I believe it was in Sweden, that had his oxygen cut off because of an accident, was declared dead and brought back and was resuscitated. Uh, and what they discovered in the course of the resuscitation was that they just did a standard kind of genetic assay. I'm not even sure why they did this. And what they discovered was that his genes for, for, for oxygen uh, uh, consumption had altered in a way that he had a reduced level of need for oxygen for his organ systems. Mm-hmm. So he had, because of his practice of deep sea diving, there are also divers that are deep sea divers in Tahiti and Tonga and Bali that go down underwater for, you know, 15 to 20 minutes on a lung full of air. And they've begun to test these individuals. And again, what they find is they've modified the oxygen consumption component of their genetic profile in a way that they actually literally have changed it so they require less oxygen for uh, to maintain life or maintain performance. So I think these the the range, if you will, it's one thing to say it's damaged, let's bring it back into normal. It's quite a different thing to say we well, could go to metanormal. Yeah. Maybe there are ways to influence our genes in ways we never expected. There's a great study out of NASA, which maybe we can get to that. Oh, and I with, think to uh, me is fascinating. Uh, Scott Kelly. Scott Kelly, yep. the astronaut who stayed in uh, space, the twin. He's an the identical twin. twin, and he stayed in space longer than any other human. Yes. And and the result that that's that's it. And you know, when you're writing, you know, this when you're writing a book, every editor will tell you a book can go on forever until you realize that. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to stop it. Right. Well when I got to I was getting to the end of, of uh, Change Your Genes and I was trying to think, what's the drum roll? What's the last thing that you want to have in here? And then NASA came out with this beautiful study of Scott Kelly, and you're right. He was the longest uh, duration space flight, roughly 324, 25 days. So basically a year in space. And they had his genetic profile, and NASA is doing very extensive studies of epigenetic typing with all of their astronauts. Is not for the last 20 years. Huge repository. Uh, and his brother, Mark Kelly, who's an identical twin, also an astronaut, uh, is married to Gabby Giffords, who is yeah. the U.S. House of Representatives, mm-hmm. who was shot. Yes. Um, so when, when, uh, when, when Scott came back, they compared the genome to Mark and Scott. Turned out that Scott Kelly had 7%, 7% of his genome had changed in expression in a year. Now, that may sound like a lot or a little, but again, go back to the remembering less than 1% separates us from a chimpanzee. Mm-hmm. So 7% is huge. That's huge change. Um, that was roughly nine months ago when he returned. 
There's just a follow-up study published uh, last month, and what they found is that 7% of the genes had gone back to basically regress to a normal baseline, and one of that was telomeres. So the telomeres had actually elongated and the, the cap had become more integrated during spaceflight, uh, and it had begun to regress to more normal, but not entirely back. So he's picked up some mm-hmm. amount of life expectancy, but 4% of that 7% have remained unchanged. Mm-hmm. Now, what's fascinating, they have no idea what that means. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it neutral? Will it change? Will it change other genes? I mean, 4% has changed in a way we have no idea what that means. And for NASA, what they've, they've stated internally is that's one year in space. Mm. What if you spend, send, uh, humans to the moon, um, so to, to Mars. Mm-hmm. Two years in transit. Who knows what will change in the human epigenetic profile in two years? Will uh, the next generation of in, in individuals born on Mars be a different human species? Mm-hmm. If 7% of their epigenetic profile changes, if 4% changes permanently in one year, let's say it stabilizes at 4% for two years. That's huge. That's the difference between us and, that's more than the difference between us and chimpanzees. Would this next generation be metahuman or beyond what we know as as human, as homo sapiens? So these are very practical, kind of profound implications coming out of these studies. It it sounds like you've also hinted that perhaps life expectancy can increase from uh, time in outer space. Yes, um, and and yes. Now, that's that's kind of a fascinating uh, outcome. I would have thought the opposite because of cosmic yep. rays and so on. Yes, that would be the prediction, and that, in fact, was their prediction, mm-hmm. uh, that there would be damage due to radiation, because we do know that radiation disrupts genes and may disrupt the telomere. Mm-hmm. But somehow, in zero gravity, uh, the telomere actually kind of went loose, mm-hmm. uh, uh, got longer, more intact, and who knows how many years could have been five years, could have been five decades. We don't know what that elongation actually would translate into, but the fact that it had elongated in 300 and some odd days in space is astounding that that would happen. It shows how powerful the influence of epigenesis is over this biologically stable, supposedly inert biomarker. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Kenneth Pelletier, what a fascinating discussion. <laughs> I've enjoyed it thoroughly. This is uh, an amazing new world we're moving into, and uh, I'm just delighted uh, to know that my old friend is on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. And thank you for being with us. 